Amen. Hey, and isn't it? You, do you want to know the fact that we sat for a minute in silence? Do you know how countercultural that is? Uh, in C.S. Lewis and the Screw Tape Letters, Satan says his, he has two preferred methods, means of, of ruining and destroying people, and one of them is noise. So it is really countercultural to just sit for a minute in silence. I appreciate you guys doing that with us every week. All right, turn to the Gospel of Mark. If you've got your Bible or you've got your Bible phone, but I want you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. For those of you who don't attend here, we've been going through the New Testament as a body. We've got, we've got tons and tons of groups of three and four triads meeting during the week. We're reading through the New Testament together, and I'm loving it, um, loving going through the Word. Encourage you to keep, keep up with it. Um, I was going to say something. I'm going to wait till next week about that, but just keep, keep with it. I love Mark. Mark's my favorite gospel. He has more details than any other gospel. He really advances the story along quickly, and so I'm just loving being in Mark. And so I'm going to be in chapter 5. I'm going to read a story that if, you were, if you're doing that New Testament reading, we read yesterday um, of an event that happened with a man who was demon-possessed on the other side of Galilee. And so we're in... Mark chapter 5, verse 1. I'm going to be, we're not going to stand and read it together as a whole. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the verses. Occasionally I'm going to pause because Matthew and Luke also have eyewitness, eyewitness testimony of this. They add some other details that we don't have in Mark and just a few other comments that I think to answer some questions people always have. Um, but I want to start in verse 1 as we read the word of the Lord. And we want to read with open hearts and minds, right, with receptive hearts. So Lord, speak to us today through your word. Uh, we, we want to leave just people formed by you and sent by you, Jesus. Amen. All right, verse 1 says, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Um, if, you were, if, you read, if you're reading with us in chapter 4, it's a pretty famous Jesus story. Probably, you know, if you haven't grown up in church like I didn't, you may not know it. But it's the story. They were coming across the lake. The big storm hit. They thought they were going to get die. The boat was getting filled with water. Jesus is asleep. And they say, you know, don't you care that we're going to die? Um, Mark is recording Peter's eyewitness testimony. It was probably Peter that shouted that because Peter was always the first to talk, right? Don't you care that we're going to die? Um, which, this is a total aside, which I think is really cool because then many years later in 1 Peter 5, 7, he says, cast all of your cares upon him because he does care for you. So that's really cool. But... So they've, they've come across the boat, they've had this whole storm incident as they were coming across, and then they arrive um, to the region of the Gerasenes. I want to actually show that to you. If you've been to Israel, and if you haven't, I really recommend you go. It is, it's powerful to be there and see things. If you're at the Sea of Galilee, this is, on, this is looking from the side where the Israelites would have lived, probably close to Tiberias is my guess. And if you look across the Sea of Galilee, you look upon the Golan Heights. If you know anything about the Syrian-Palestinian-Israeli conflict, you hear a lot about the Golan Heights, and that's the Golan Heights. When you're looking across, that's what you're looking at. That area was the area of the Ten Cities. A few weeks ago, when we talked about the Canaanite woman, we talked about the area of the Ten Cities, very Gentile area. A lot of the Canaanites had been driven out of the land. That's where they settled. So for a Jewish person who, by the way, would never go to that side because to them that was unclean, right? To a Jewish person, when they would look across the Sea of Galilee and see this, that was like very imposing, a very fearful, frightening territory. And so we're told that they went across to the, the region of the Gerasenes. Specifically, we now know where this happened. It is, uh, there's a town called Gergesha that they, uh, there was a fishing village that they've discovered and that this event happened just outside of that. Um, this area was called 
the Gergesha and the Gergesenes because of the Canaanite people, one of the seven, remember we talked about the seven Canaanite nations, one of those was the Gergeshites, and so the Gergeshites are the ones who settled in this area of the land um, of the Golan Heights over there. There were ten Roman cities in this area, the Decapolis, one of them was Hippos, and you can see on the map, Hippos is about two miles south of where this event we read happened today, up on a high hill, um, really beautiful Roman city that was there. Um, and it was about five-mile journey from Capernaum, where Jesus was doing a lot of his ministry over there, about two hours in the boat if there was no storm. So we don't know really how long it took. But the key is, is he's taking his followers for the first time to a place they've seen their whole lives but have never been to, have been afraid to go to, because in their mind, remember when we talked about the Canaanite woman, in their mind, Gentiles were unclean. And unclean was a very ritual thing. It was, it was in the Old Testament, the idea that if you encounter or touch anything unclean, an unclean person or thing, unclean land, it makes you unable to come into the presence of God until you get purified from that. So, in their, so when they cross the sea to this area, they are going, he's taking them to a very unclean region, okay? This would not be a comfortable place for them. And so it says in verse 2, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure or an unclean spirit came from the tombs to meet him, came from the tombs to meet him. Luke says that this man had grown up, he had grown up in the town, and it's the Greek word polis, so he had actually grown up in Hippos, that was his hometown, but as we're going to see in a minute, he doesn't live there anymore, but that's where he had grown up. Verse 3 says, this man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Let me show you a photograph of the exact specific spot where this event happens, and we're going to look in a minute at a story with pigs. This is the location. It's just south of that village of Gergesha. You can see, I don't know how well you can see, but there's a couple of caves there that are natural in the limestone. And those would be tombs where they would bury dead people. And I'm going to let you just stare at that the whole time. So if you get bored with what I'm saying, you can just look at the cool picture. Um, but nobody could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. He had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart. Can you imagine that? tore the chains apart, and he broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, these very hills, he would cry out, and he would cut himself with stones. In Luke, he tells us that for a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house. For a long time. Matthew gives us this detail. He was so violent that nobody would dare pass that way. Nobody would pass this way. And Jesus is bringing his 12 to that very place to encounter that very man. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this, because this, I just was telling you, in the Jewish mind, Gentile territory was unclean, and for them to go there would make them unclean. The Bible doesn't say that. That had become a tradition of their religious leaders that they had taught, but the Bible doesn't say that. But there were a lot of unclean things going on here from the Bible. Number one, in the Old Testament, it said if you came into contact with anything related to the dead, tombs or dead bones or anything, that made you unclean until you could go through a purification. So the fact that this man lived in tombs where dead people were meant that this guy was very unclean. Um, not only that, we're going to encounter in a minute, there's a lot of pigs in this area. On these hills were pigs that were feeding. Jews would never have pigs because the Old Testament talked about pork and pigs are unclean. They would never possess one. Lots of pigs over here. They could see them in the distance, you know, from across the sea, all the pigs. So that made this whole region unclean and that this man was in this area with pigs made the whole thing unclean. 
And not only that, but how he cut himself with stones, which would have made him bleed and have other bodily fluids. And the Old Testament talks about to come in contact with blood and bodily fluids makes you unclean and you'd have to get richly purified. So I'm telling you all that because I really want you to know when he's coming across the boat and they see this dude, this whole situation of them is unclean to the nth degree. Like their skin is crawling because he's taking them to a place that's like the most unclean place that they've ever been. Does that make sense? So this is a, this, what he's doing here is really, really powerful. In fact, there's evidence for the text. If I had more time, I would tell you why. There's strong evidence from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that they never got out of the boat because to them to set foot on that land would have made them unclean. So there's really strong evidence. They stayed in the boat the whole time and from the boat watched Jesus as he stepped out and he had this amazing encounter. So let's look at the encounter. Verse 6, when he saw Jesus, this man, from a distance, probably he was up in one of these tombs, who knew, saw him from a distance, he ran to Jesus, fell on his knees in front of him. For those of you that are reading Mark, the New Testament with this, have you noticed in Mark how many times people fell on their knees or fell at the feet of Jesus? It's a really common theme. So he ran and fell on his knees in front of him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, and I'm too much of an introvert to in front of a bunch of people to shout like he did. I should have invited somebody up here to do it. But he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? What do you want with me? What are you doing here? And what's, what I find so amazing is he sees him from a distance, runs down to meet him at the seashore, and immediately he says, You are the Son of the Most High God. Um, Matthew, in Matthew, he says, Son of God. It's the same meaning. Um, and I find it so interesting as we've been reading through Mark, if you've got uh, the thing that I think are still back there, I saw a few people grabbing them. In Mark's gospel, he's, he's writing it to Gentiles and he's asking the question, the first part of the gospel, he's wanting you to think, who is this man? And then the second half of the gospel, he's really trying to identify that he's the Messiah and what does that look like? Um, but what's interesting in the first part of the gospel, if you've read through it with us through the New Testament, have you noticed nobody has a clue who this man is, but there's one group who is very clear on who he is. In Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 3, and here in Mark chapter 5, he encounters demons. And every time he encounters demons, they initiate contact with him, and they always come to him and say, you are the Holy One, you're the Son of God, you're the Son of the Most High. They are very clear on who he is. Nobody else is clear on who he is. We just read this week, his own family thought Jesus was going out of his mind and they came to Capernaum to get him and take him away, put him in an institution or something. But his, only fam his own family thought he was out of his mind. The Pharisees, we've read, they thought he was possessed with demons. In the story just before this, when they're coming across on the, on the, the lake and that storm comes in and is swamping them, and then he just stands up and he says, be calm, be stilled, and the water becomes like, the storm dies, the water just becomes as smooth as glass. His own followers were told to say, who is this guy? So they don't even know. He gets to shore, and this man comes running, son of the Most High. And he says, what do you want with me? It's, uh, the phrase is actually recording kind of an idiom from that day, which was, why are you interfering with me? Just leave me alone. What are you doing over here? You're not supposed to be here. Why are you interfering? Leave me alone. And he says, in God's name, don't torture me. In Luke, um, the demons say not only that, but they say, don't order us to go into the abyss. And I don't have time to talk about that, but that there was this place that was... 
reserved for very, very evil spirits where they would be locked up until final judgment. They're like, don't send us to the abyss. In Matthew, they say, before the appointed time. They're like, we're going to be put there at some point, but you're here a little bit early. Why are you interfering with us? What are you doing here? And it says in verse 8, for Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure or you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. Now, if you know much about, you know, you've seen many cool movies with the the Romans and all of that. There's always centurions who lead a legion. A legion was a military group of 6,000 men, 120 horsemen, and then different support personnel. But 6,000, that's a lot of people that were in a legion. Um, We don't know that this this demon is saying that there's 6,000 of them, but is just saying we are many. There's a lot of us in here. And we're actually going to see in a minute that there were at least 2,000 demons in this guy. There were a lot of demons that were possessing him. And this description, this legion, is just trying to to illustrate the massive nature of the oppression that this man was under, the number of demons. And it's interesting that the demons chose this military word to describe themselves, their community in him, a legion, because the Romans were known to be violent, ruthless, and oppressive. Everywhere they went, violence, they were ruthless and oppressive. And that's exactly what these demons are. They have come into him. They're violent, they're ruthless, and they're oppressive with him. So he's possessed by thousands of demons. No wonder the text says that nobody could subdue him. No wonder Matthew says nobody would even go that way. They were so afraid of him. Verse 10. So he begged Jesus. First of several times we'll see this word. He begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. So they're like, leave us in this region of Decapolis. And I don't have time to go into why that may be the case, but they're begging him to not send them out of the area. Verse 11 says, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside right here. They're pretty sure this is the exact location this happened. The Sea of Galilee is right below the cliffs there. So a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. And the demons begged Jesus, their second time to beg, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And anytime people read this, I mean, I'm asked these questions, I ask these questions at some point, two big questions is like, why the pigs? Why are they begging to go into pigs? Um, and then why does Jesus even allow it? And we really don't know about why the pigs, but there are some hints in other parts of the Bible and some of the Gospels. There are some hints that evil spirits, which are disembodied, prefer to be embodied in some kind of a physical form in something. They prefer to possess something. Not totally sure of that, but it could be that what they're doing is they're saying, we want to be possessing something. Let us go into the pigs, but we want to stay in this region Um, But I think the bigger question a lot of times, at least that I wanted to know, is is why would Jesus Jesus even allow that? Because it says that he permitted it. Um, And I really think that Jesus did this because he needed to give evidence to both this man and to the herdsmen who were watching this happening, who are eyewitnesses of this whole event, that he needed to give them eyewitness, tangible evidence to what was happening. And when we get to Easter, I'm going to talk about this. This was significant in my coming to faith. 
is I find one of the things I love about Jesus is frequently he will give objective, tangible evidence for something that's happening spiritually that I really can't have proof of, but he'll give evidence. And so by casting these demons into pigs and then these 2,000 pigs running down and killing themselves, Jesus is giving evidence of two things. Number one, the reality of the miracle that the demons had in fact been cast out of him. He could have just said, oh, be gone, but you know, how do you know that, right? We're going to see that when, we, when I have the story I'm going to do on Easter. He could just say, oh, get out of here. But the fact that these pigs do this is evidence that this literally happened. And number two, it also shows the magnitude of the miracle. The fact that it was 2,000 pigs who went running down and who were destroyed shows the huge number of demons that literally were in the man. And so that's for this man to know what was going on, um, who was possessed, but it's for those eyewitnesses, the herdsmen who are watching this, to know that something's really happening. And we're going to see that this is really significant. So in verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off, and they reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. Um, into the town, in Greek, it's polis. So they probably ran to Gergesh of the village, but they specifically went to Hippos, to that city where he was from, and they told people in Hippos about it, two miles away, and people came streaming out of Hippos to come and see what had happened. And verse 15, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, he was sitting there. This man had been naked for years, is dressed, and he's in his right mind. And then it says, they were afraid. When they saw that, they were afraid. 16, those who had, been, who had seen it, these herdsmen, the eyewitnesses, told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man. Luke says they told specifically how the demon-possessed man had been cured. So they told specifically the story of how Jesus had cast the demons out of him. And they told about the pigs as well. And verse 17, then the people began to plead with Jesus. In the Greek, it's the same word as beg that we've seen in this text. English, they just changed it for variety. But they begged Jesus to leave their region. They're begging him to leave the region. So the demons begged not to leave the region. They begged to be cast into spirits. Um, and now the people are begging. And they're begging that he would what? Get out of here. Could you leave? And what's interesting to me is, is they're begging him to leave the region. The demons begged him, let us stay in this region. The people are like, they're begging him, would you get out of our region? We don't want your kind here. Um, Luke adds this detail. Mark talks about they were afraid in verse 15. Luke records that, but Luke also records at the end of this verse, at this, this section, he adds, because they were overwhelmed with fear. Twice, Luke talks about their fear and says they're overwhelmed. And so a question that I always had, I think a lot of people have, is why were they so afraid? So much so that Luke writes it twice, that they won him out of the region. And having worked with international students over the years has helped me understand this a lot. Not only that, as you get to know missionaries who are different places all over the world taking the good news of Jesus. And what you learn when you start working cross-culturally is that there are three kinds of cultures in the world. And I'm not going to go into detail on this too much, but there's what's called guilt cultures, which are Western cultures. There are shame-based cultures, which are primarily Eastern cultures. And then there's what's called power cultures. And power cultures are cultures that worship a lot of spirits and a lot of gods. So any polytheistic region is a power culture, which would have been the Greeks, the Romans, the Canaanites. They lived in a power culture. Now, here's why that's really significant. 
Because if you live in an area and you believe that there are thousands of spirits, that there's gods of all different levels, there's demigods, there's ancestor spirits, that everywhere you go there are spiritual powers, and that's what they call them, spiritual powers, who are roaming around and they're watching you and they're trying to get you. People who live in a power culture live in great fear their whole life. Everything is about spirits and being afraid of spirits. And so in power cultures, you'll accumulate amulets. You'll get little pieces of paper from uh, the shaman guy, which I'll talk about in a minute, that have certain words that you can, incantations you can say to keep spirits away. That in this part of the Middle East, even to this day, there are people in that region, if you step over a stream or over water, there are certain words you say to keep the spirit of the water from possessing you. They live their whole life in fear of these spirits. And so life in a power culture like that it's all about doing things, accumulating objects, anything to give you some power over the spiritual beings around you. Now, in a power culture, the most important people are the witch doctors or the shamans because they have huge spiritual power. They're able to control the spirits in ways that average people can't. And so they will go, like if somebody gets sick, they believe that's because of a spirit. They'll go to the witch doctor because he has greater power than that spirit does to cast it out. Does that make sense? So witch doctors and shamans are really important. If I want to curse somebody, I don't know how to do it, but I go to the shaman, he'll put the curse on them for me because this man has great spiritual power or woman. It can be a man or a woman. But what's interesting in power cultures, people will use the shaman when they need him, but other than that, they do not want him around. Usually the shaman or witch doctor lives isolated from the village because everybody is afraid of him. Because he also possesses great power, and he could blast you at any moment if you do anything to offend him. And so people live in great fear and power cultures of the shaman. So here Jesus comes, this man who has thousands of spirits that nobody's been able to control. There probably was like a local shaman, couldn't take care of, couldn't do anything to this guy. Jesus shows up and just merely with his words is able to cast these spirits out of him. And so in their mind, this guy is like a witch doctor from another region and the last thing they want is for him to be living where they are because they have no idea who he is or what he can do. Does that make sense? So they're overwhelmed with fear. And they're like, sir, go back to where you came from. We don't want your kind with such great power here. So verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. This is the fourth time we've seen the word beg. The spirits first beg, don't send us out of the region. Second, they beg, put us in the pigs. The townspeople beg him, get out of here. And this man's begging, I want to follow you with my whole life. You're, we'll see in a minute, you're my Lord. He's had a powerful encounter. So Jesus did not let him though. But he said, go home to your own people, your own family in the Greek, and tell how much the Lord has done for you, how he's had mercy on you. As we've been reading Mark, have you noticed how, especially in Mark, almost every time somebody's healed, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Even the demons in chapter 1 and chapter 3, when they say, you're the son of the Most High, he tells them to be quiet, right? He keeps telling people to be quiet, and the question, that's one of the questions everybody has in Mark is, why does he do that so much? But he tells this guy to go home and tell people. Well, it's because in Israel, where he's been all of the time before this, and where he'll spend most of his time, they have conceptions of the Jewish Messiah in their mind. We've talked about that with, the, uh, with John the Baptist about a month ago. I'm losing track of time already. But they believed the Messiah was going to be a military victor who would come and conquer the Romans, set them free, right? That was their whole idea of Messiah. 
and he knows if word starts spreading like wildfire that maybe he's the Messiah, that the, whole, the imagination of the, the Jewish culture is, is they're going to expect him to become a Messiah. In fact, in John 5, we're told that when a people in a region found out who they thought he was, they tried to make him king, and that's what they would want to do. And so in Israel, he's trying to keep that wildfire from, from, from spreading so fast so that, as we'll see in the last half of Mark, he can define what Messiahship is, which is not being a conquering king but a suffering servant to die for sin, right? So he's trying to kind of keep that under the lid in Israel. But when he's out of Israel where they don't have any messianic expectations, he says, I want you to go home and tell people what God's done for you and how he had mercy. So the man in verse 20, he went away and he began to tell in the Decapolis in the Ten City region how much Jesus had done for him. This is one of the most significant statements of the deity of Jesus in the Gospels, by the way. He tells this man, go tell the people what the Lord has done for you. Lord is, is, is what you would call the most high God, even in polytheism, that God who is the invisible God in heaven, who has power over all, that whole hierarchy, the Lord. In Luke, it says, tell how much God has done for you, because Lord and God are the same, the Creator. You go home and tell much, how much the Creator has done for you. And he went home and he told people how much who? How much Jesus did for him because he clearly put the two together in this miracle that the only person that could do this is the creator himself who has come down in human flesh who came to me and set me free. And he went and told people, I have met the creator and his name is Jesus. So what's really cool is he went and did that in Decapolis. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. And then it just says, all the people that heard about him, they were amazed. And that ends the story, that all the people were amazed. I want to tell you, his story was really, really important. His story was really important. This area of the Decapolis. So here's what Jesus said. Go home and tell your family. Go to Hippos and tell everybody what Jesus has done for you. Mark tells us he went through the whole Decapolis, the whole region. That's a really, really big region. If you're not from Emporia, this won't make a lot of sense to you. But Decapolis was 125 miles north and south, 35 miles across. That would be the equivalent of if you, if you left Emporia, went to Beto, how many of you know Beto Junction? If you're from Emporia, most of you know on the way to Kansas City. If you went to Beto Junction and another 15 miles to Waverly, there's the 35 miles. And then if you went from Waverly and Emporia all the way up to the Nebraska border, really close, Sabetha, just a few miles from Nebraska, but we'll include it. If you went from here, from here to there, all the way up to Nebraska, that's how large the Decapolis was. And it says he went through that whole region telling people of what Jesus had done for him. Isn't that amazing? He was so impacted, his story, that he wanted everybody in his region to hear. And what's really cool about this story, because the people, when this first happens, are afraid of him. Do you remember when we did the Canaanite woman story in Matthew 15? How when Jesus, that was, that was his actually second time to go into Gentile territory. He took his disciples up there and met the Canaanite woman, healed her daughter of a demon. And then it says he went down and he spent, he was on a three-month tour. He went into the Decapolis. So he went into this region later. You're going to get there in two chapters in Mark chapter 7. And when he got to this region, rather than fear, here's what Matthew said. Great crowds, when they heard he was there, came to him. And they brought their sick and their possessed and the blind and the deaf and the mute to him. Now, what had changed in Decapolis from great fear to suddenly he shows up and hundreds and thousands of people are coming out to meet him? Do you know what the difference was? 
this man's story. This man's story made that much of an impact. He was the first missionary sent by Jesus to the Gentiles. Kind of cool. So his story, do you see how important his story is? But I want you to know your story and my story are equally important. Equally important. When I see this story, at first blush, I'm like, that's not my story, right? I'm not anywhere close to that. But I want you to know that this speaks more to your story than you realize. It speaks more to your own story than you realize. Because I want you to see that this man literally went from the realm of the dead back home to the realm of the living. From the realm of the dead to the realm of the living. And his was a story from death to life. His was a story from death to life. I want you to say that. This, this concept to me is so important this morning. I want you to say it. Can you say it with me, death to life? Death to life. Let's do that again. Death to life. This is really significant. He went from death to life, from being in bondage, being in bondage to set free, from being unclean and impure to being made clean and pure. That was his story. And I want you to know if you have been saved by Jesus from your sin, that is your story. Your story is a story from death to life. It's the same story. Maybe not the same details, but it's the same story. And I just know in an audience like this, so I grew up in a non-Christian home. So when I tell my story, um, you know, it wasn't addiction or anything like that. But to come from no religion to coming to believe in Jesus, you know, people are like, well, that's a cool story. I've grown up in church my whole life with a Christian family. Like, it's kind of hard for, you know, it's hard for, I don't have a story like that. You know, when I was 13 or 14 or when I was a high school student, I came to accept Jesus personally for the first time. But I don't have this, like, dramatic story. And I wish I had that. And I want to tell you, we all have a dramatic story. All of us. That all of us, our story is a story of from death to life. That's everybody's story who comes to know Jesus from death to life. In your mind, if your story is unimportant and not miraculous, I want you to know that it's totally miraculous because every story of salvation through Jesus is a miracle, all of them. All of our stories are the same. They're all miracles. Everybody who's accepted Jesus, every single one, has gone from death to life. And that's a really cool story, isn't it? From death to life. We were all this man. We were all living in tombs of our own making. Tombs of sin, all of us. We were all as good as dead. Every single one of us as good as dead. We were all beyond human saving, human rescue, beyond saving ourselves, just like this man. All of us were beyond saving ourselves. Let me show you the words of Paul in the Bible. This is really significant. In Ephesians, he says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Dead. That was our condition. Or Jesus, dead, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful selves, following its desires and thoughts. All of us were spiritually dead. And then he continues, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, God made us alive with Christ, not me, God made us alive with Christ. Not being good, God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. 
it's a gift from God. Otherwise, we would boast or brag about it, right? We'd all get to heaven. Hey, Jason, what did you do to get here? Well, I fed a thousand people in Mexico. I helped three widows across the street. That's what I did. And I'd be like, well, I fed 2,000 in Mexico. And I helped 20 widows, right? It's a gift from God. It's all His work so that nobody can brag about it. So then when one day when I'm in eternity and I ask Samuel, Samuel, what did you do to get here? He will say, absolutely nothing. It is Christ alone. It's Christ alone. He took me from death to life. And I'll be like, brother, that's my story, right? That's my story. It's all about Him. So that's the story. It's about death from life. Jesus, the one it's all about. Here's what he says in John chapter 5, verse 24. Very truly, I tell you. And when he says that, very truly, that means, listen, this is really, really important. Very truly, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from what? From death to life. From death to life. All of us, that is our story, if you know Jesus, from death to life, that we were all slaves to sin. All of us. And we were set free from that bondage to sin. All of us were clean, unclean and impure. Do you remember Matthew 15? Where does he put uncleanness? He says it's not in pigs and that stuff. It's in your heart. It's the human heart that's unclean. I can't fix that. All of us go from being impure and unclean to him coming in and beginning to transform me. All of us go from death to life, spiritual death to spiritual life. And I really want to challenge you. Here's why your story is so important. People need to hear your story. We're going to see three stories in a minute. And people need to hear your story. And my story is from being totally empty to being full, being totally afraid of death to no fear of death through Jesus. That would be my story if I had a theme. But my story always ends. I went from death to life. And I want to challenge all of us to tell your story, number one, and when you do, that's what the story is about. It's about from death to life. And here's why it's important. People in our culture need to hear this story. And here's why. Most people in America who've grown up with church or whatever, with religion, this is what I was like, even though I wasn't in church. This was my thought. Here's what most people think. They think Jesus and Christianity is about making bad people good or good people better. It's just about moral reformation. That's how most people think of Jesus. That is the furthest thing from the truth. People need to hear the Bible doesn't say, you're not just bad, you're dead. And you don't just need to become good, you need to receive life. You need to go from death to life. Our culture so desperately needs to hear this story. Thousands of people grow up in church and they think it's about being from bad to good and have no clue that it's about death to life. And so they need to hear our story. So just everybody, tell your story, tell it, and frame it, frame it in that, from death to life. All right. Uh, I'm excited about this because I went from death to life. And that's a powerful thing. All right, we're going to baptize three people. You're going to hear their stories. Stories about three individuals who've gone from death to life because they received Jesus and were born again. Because Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot enter my kingdom. You have to go from death to life. So they're going to tell their stories, and we're going to see them getting baptized. And I just want you to know what we're going to see, the stories we hear before we do this, these are miracle stories. These are death to life stories, okay? Miracle stories. Let me say one thing about baptism before we do it. I, I really need to be careful with this because I know before I became a believer, when I was unchurched, I know what I thought baptism was, um, and I just want to clarify. 
We talked about this last week, but the, in the Bible, God is a covenant-making God. He's a covenant-making God. Um, anytime he enters into a relationship with a person, he enters into a covenant relationship. Marriage is a covenant relationship. All in the Bible, he enters into covenant relationships. And like any covenant relationship, when God makes that, he provides a sign of the covenant, a seal and a sign. We're told baptism is a seal and a sign of the new covenant. I'm going to talk about the sign in a minute. A seal, you know what a seal is? Like if you graduate from ESU and you get your grades, the official document from, uh, what's that office called? Whatever, huh? Registrar or something, I don't know. There's a seal of Emporia State University stamped on it, right? That seal shows association with the university. Um, and that's what baptism is. We talked last week about when I get baptized, it's a little bit like me putting on, I'm a Broncos fan, sorry for those of you that are visiting, you know, wearing my, uh, my, uh, my oh man, I heard a child screaming out at that. Did you hear that? <laughs> like, was, was that a yay or a, or a pain? I don't know. But... Um, I've got, you know, my Peyton Manning, like, it's me associating, identifying, I'm with the Broncos. Most of you wear Mahomes shirts, I know, and Mahomes is a good guy. Seals also show ownership, that, that all baptism is doing is just saying, he, he, he owns me, he's the Lord of my life now. But really important to me is baptism is a sign, the Bible says, and I, I just want you to know, a sign is simply a visible token of a, of an, a covenant already entered into. When I marry people, what, get, what makes them married are the vows they exchange, we could stop there and be done with the wedding and they could go without rings and they are married legally. Does that understand? They enter the relationship by, by those vows. What the ring part of the ceremony does, all it does is this is a way of them showing people of the relationship they've entered into. Does that make sense? That's what baptism is. This thing they're going to do has nothing to do with them becoming a Christian. Okay? They've already entered a relationship with Jesus through faith in Him. This is just the sign this is the way of them showing publicly something that's already happened to them internally. So it says on the bottom, baptism doesn't make someone have a relationship with God. It's only a sign that someone has already entered into that relationship by receiving Jesus. And when I do a wedding, I talk about the importance of this sign, that it is three things. It is in a circle because God intends that when I get married that that's an, ever, that's a, an unending love, that it continues, that I don't end that relationship. It's made from a precious metal because God, to God, marriage is precious in His sight. It's made from gold, usually, specifically. Now that there's a lot of titanium and all this other stuff, but gold because it is that which is least tarnished and longest lasting. So there's actually a picture here in this. It's really cool. There's a picture you're going to see here in a second that we believe that historically that Jesus died for my sin, that He was buried and then he rose again to new life three days later. And he did that in order to offer me forgiveness of my sins and new life with him. And so, in receiving him, the day I received him, I died to my old self. I was buried in him and I rose to new life. I was made new in the day I received him. So, in receiving him, I'm cleansed from my sin and I rise to new life with him. And what this is, is this is simply a picture of that reality that happened when I accepted him. Does that make sense? The old Garen dying and coming to a new Garen, that is something that happened the day I received him. I was baptized three months later as a visible sign to show people the reality of what had already taken place. So I just want to really be clear on that. So there's the old me, the old me dies, and there's the new me in Jesus. And that's why we have these made new cool t-shirts. So, all right, I think we're ready to do the baptism. Um, if you are here, 
and you're new or you're here and you're like, I don't know what it's like to go from death to life. I thought Jesus was all about making bad people good. I don't know what it's like to have a relationship with him. I have up here the gospel of Mark that you would be free to take if you're interested in knowing what does it mean to go from death, death to life. These are really cool gospels, and in them is a little booklet that talks about how to know him. So if you have any questions about this, if you're like, I don't know Jesus, I don't know what it's like to be forgiven my sin, I want to know that, or I'm curious, then come up and grab one of these. So, uh, especially like, for those of you from 12th, isn't it? really exciting to get this in here where it belongs in front of the family. Um, a lot of people put a lot of time into this, so thank you guys for making this all work. So um, we're going to finish with a song. Um, we purposely put this up here, Christ alone, because it is only Him. I'm saved only through Him and His blood and sacrifice. So we want to sing that song. And even as I talk to these three guys, I guess they're all heading back that way, but when we were talking about this song, it fits so much the stories that they had. And so... Um, when we sing this song, don't just sing a song, but really reflect on the words because they're very powerful. So would you stand and join us?
Part of the reason we move this in here is we know how important this is for those of us who've received Jesus to see this and to be reminded of our commitment to him, that I've gone from death to life, and that he asked for my all. So let this be kind of a, a reminder of that to you. And let me pray for those who are baptized, and then I'll send you out. Father, thank you for these that are baptized today, first service, second service, just the stories. Um, as I've gotten to know these individuals and heard the things that you've done, um, how you brought them from death to life, it's just so powerful. Thank you for the reality of who you are, how you do change lives. Thank you for how you changed my life. We pray in the good name of Jesus. Amen. So 12th, as always, you have a story to tell, right? And it's a story from death to life. So there's a lost world out there that needs to hear that. So you are sent. <laughs>